Hello everyone, this is Dawn, host of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, here with the first of my guest episodes while I'm on a bit of a podcasting break. In case you missed the announcement I posted a while back, I'm taking my first podcasting break in my nearly nine years of podcasting monthly so that I can focus a bit on my health and just to have a little bit of personal time. But I didn't want y'all to have nothing to listen to while I was on said break, so I'm posting some podcast episodes I was a guest on that I want to highlight and that I think y'all will really enjoy a lot. Before we get to the episode, I'm releasing this in December, so happy holiday season! I hope you're having a nice Christmas, Hanukkah, Yule, or whatever winter holiday that you personally like to celebrate. I know it's a bummer I'm not doing my year in review episode this December, but I was still determined to do my annual holiday giveaway. I love giving gifts, and it's just my way of giving back to you lovely listeners for all the support and kindness you've given me over the year. The giveaway is now over, and our winners this year include Sam, Marcos, and Lisa. Thank you all so much for entering, and I'll be sending each of you a package of goodies sometime in January after the holiday mail has calmed down a little bit. Many thanks to the companies that donated gifts this year, including G-Kids, Right Stuff, Tiger Lab Vinyl, and Viz. Hopefully I'll be able to do another giveaway soon, so please look forward to it. Also, a huge thanks to those who left me tips this month on Kofi. I really appreciate the tips right now, as even though I'm not making new episodes at the moment, I'm still working on things like these guest episodes, as well as stuff for the blog, and other things besides podcasts. So, your support means a lot to me. Huge holiday-flavored thanks to Dan Devine, JLMK Art, Grant the Thief, Danny H, Ducknuts, and several other people who wished to remain anonymous. I appreciate the tip so much and hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. If you want to spread a little holiday cheer my way and get a shout out on the next episode to be just as festive as they are, all you have to do is go to my Kofi account and leave me a tip of two or more coffees. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the blog at animenostalgia.blogspot.com as well as at animenostalgia.tumblr.com. Now, with all of those very important updates out of the way, This first guest episode is from earlier in 2021 from the Anime is Lit podcast and is all about the 1991 TV anime version of Ryoko Ikeda's classic shoujo series, Dear Brother, aka Onisamae. I had so much fun on Danny and Kay's podcast as I adore Dear Brother, and you might also recognize the other guest on the podcast, Diana, who has been on both my Legend of the Galactic Heroes episode as well as my Seiyuu Spotlight on Megumi Hayashibara. We really take a deep dive on Dear Brother, but for those who are new to the series, this episode is relatively spoiler-free, so you can listen to it without ever having seen the series. 
We have some fantastic discussion in the episode, so I'm really happy to repost it on my feed to share with you all, as I honestly don't think I could do a better episode on Dear Brother myself, even if I tried. Kay and Danny's podcast is fantastic, and if you've never heard it before, please enjoy and be sure to follow them on Twitter at AnimeIsLitPod if you don't already. And with that, please enjoy this episode of Anime is Lit on Dear Brother. Welcome to Anime is Lit. I'm Kay. I'm Danny. This is a podcast where we talk about anime like it's literature, but fun and not boring. And boy, do we have an episode that's like it's literature. (laughs) (laughs) This show basically pulled us out of our slight hiatus. Slight a year of hiatus. What are you talking about? We dropped an episode in May and now it's July and we're dropping another episode. (laughs) (laughs) We took a little break in 2020, if you guys noticed, but that doesn't mean we are not making new episodes. We have lots of plans for new ones. Just kind of do it at our own pace, so... Mm-hmm. Sorry for the gap, but we are back, and boy are we back. Um, so let me go ahead and introduce our amazing, fantastic guests. First of all, we have a returning guest. Dawn, would you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Dawn. Uh, I'm from the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. Uh, I was previously on for Rose of Versailles, I believe. Yep, you're mm-hmm. our Ikeda consultant. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode, absolutely go back for that one. That was a fun one. Um, And Diana, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Diana. This is my first time on this podcast. But yeah, I don't have a podcast of my own. I just like to show up on other people's. And (laughs) I also really like Ryoko Ikeda. (laughs) Definitely. If you guys, uh, just to plug uh, something that you guys have done, the four of us all happen to love Legend of the Galactic Heroes. If you follow any of us on Twitter, you'll know that. Um, and on Dawn's Anime Nostalgia podcast, she did an episode on Legend of the Galactic Heroes that has Diana on it. And that's a great one. Yeah. You should check it out. It was, that was really fun. It's also relatively spoiler-free, too. It's just sort of yes. like a, t- a taste of, like, if you've always been curious about Legend of Galactic Heroes, it kind of gives you an idea of what it's all about. Speaking of spoilers, so the show we are covering today is called Dear Brother, and we will be splitting this episode into two episodes. Um, The first one that you're listening to right now will be spoiler-free completely, so you're free to listen to the whole thing to the end of part one um, if you have not seen Dear Brother. However, if you have not seen Dear Brother and you plan to, I absolutely recommend do not listen to the spoiler section before you watch it, because there is a lot that can be spoiled for this anime and like a lot of mystery element in it. Yeah. Like I know some people are like, Oh, spoilers don't affect my enjoyment watching the show. This one does. You're wrong. You're wrong about this one. (laughs) This one will. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, like not enough people have seen this show for various reasons. um, And it is still streaming for free on retro crush for some limited time that we do not know um, when it will come down. But at this time, it's still streaming for completely free. You don't even have to make an account. Please, please go watch it on Retro Crush if you've never seen it. Or, um, I think you can still pick up the Blu-rays. Add music, uh, under this. We, uh, you can also pick up the Blu-rays from Right Stuff Anime. Um, they're pretty affordable. 
Yeah, I was just linking a friend to them last night, so I can confirm that they are still up. They think they'll be up for just a few more months, and they were currently $47 as of yesterday. Yeah, which is a good price considering that the anime is 39 episodes long. It's a long one, Um, but it's a really beautiful um, transfer. It's just, it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah, they're absolutely gorgeous Blu-rays, like... I had to watch a few episodes with the streaming while I was doing some other stuff. And I was just like, oh, I want to get back to these Blu-rays. They're so uh-huh. good. Yeah, we <laughs> plugged them into our TV. And I'm not like a person who notices really about transfers and stuff, but I could tell the difference. It was beautiful mm-hmm. on the Blu-rays. There is currently an issue with the Blu-rays, though. So if mm-hmm. you buy it, please open it as soon as possible to check. Um, some people are finding that because the... Um, the middle insert of the Blu-ray case is, like, really, really firm, uh, that it's cracking the, the inside of the, one Mm -hmm. of the Blu-rays, uh, but if you contact Right Stuff, you can get a, a replacement, you can send it back and get a new one, um, but don't be one of those people that just buys it and then tosses it like on your table and you're like, oh, I'll watch it later. And then, yeah. you know, the Blu-ray goes out of print and then you have no way of replacing your cracked yep. Blu-ray. Yeah, that would be definitely check tra- that one right away. A tragedy. Oh, God. Right stuff is super cool about that stuff, though. They'll replace it. Yeah, um, definitely. All right. So speaking of Dear Brother, what the heck is this anime? <laughs> This is an anime that is based off of a manga by Ryoko Ikeda, who also wrote Rosa Versailles and Claudine, if you um, picked up that recent release. Um, So very famous mangaka. Uh, The manga was written in 1975, but the anime was made in 1991. Like, it's really interesting visually because the style looks a lot like the original, like, 70s shoujo look. But they kind of updated it to look a little bit 90s, too. Like, there are computers, and the fashion doesn't have any more bell-bottoms in the anime. Mm, <laughs> so really? it's this weird, like, Another tragic. Of, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, this hybrid of, like, kind of 70s aesthetic, but, like, really updated. And, like, just, I think the the best advantage is just, like, gorgeous, smooth animation, oh, amazing directing. so beautiful. Like, this is one that you can honestly watch just, like, for aesthetics alone. It's just so gorgeous. Oh yeah, there's there's a reason why you see a lot of uh, gifs and screen caps of Dear Brother on Tumblr. It's because it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just a little bit of context for when the anime was airing. Um, from it aired from 1991 to 1992, and Sailor Moon began airing on TV before this anime finished airing. So that's just a little bit where we were in the world. So yeah, a plot synopsis for Dear Brother. Um, this one comes from Anime News Network. It says, Before leaving her cram school, Nanako Misono asks one of the teachers if they can become pen pals. The teacher, Takehiko Henmi, is reluctant at first, but eventually accepts the offer. The story is narrated through the letters sent from Nanako as she enters Seran, a renowned private high school for girls only. There she encounters many difficulties as an ordinary middle-class girl invited to the prestigious sorority, the most traditional and sophisticated club on campus. So that's more like a description of the setup for the story. (laughs) The story is everything that happens after that point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The genre, it's like hard to define the genre of the show exactly. I think the best categories I saw listed, it's definitely shoujo. Mm -hmm. It is like the shoujoist of shoujo. Um, And the categories... The categories I would say is drama, 
uh, psychological and romance. Those are kind of the ones listed on Retro Crush. But like, there are more categories. What would you guys kind of classify it as? Um, I would definitely throw coming of age in there. I yes. think that's the the sort of uh, main thread of the story is Nanako coming of age. Mm-hmm. I think there's another category I would put it in, but let's save that for the uh, spoiler episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, some of the stuff I would say probably would be spoilery. Yeah. <laughs> There's a mystery. Uh, there is a mystery. I think several mm-hmm. even psychological is very, very accurate because mm-hmm. it's just like there's so much tension and intrigue oh my God, and yeah. secrets. Yeah. And psychological problems. Yeah. Like yeah. personally going into this, when I think of shoujo, I think of like a romance between the main character and usually a guy. Um, that's like not the thrust of this show it's mostly about nanako's like journey through this school and it's an all-girl school so like really most of the cast is women Mm -hmm. (laughs) like uh there's not a lot of guys in this story um which i think is a really awesome element to this one just a little bit more of like a sense for what the show is like um erica friedman wrote a little blurb on her blog uh at okazu she says, this is a series fraught with fraughtness. In the poisonous hothouse of an elite girl's school, a nice girl named Nanako will encounter insanity, obsession, emotional manipulation, friendship, and love. <laughs> <laughs> she is not wrong about literally yep. <laughs> any of this. Mm-hmm. Yes, true facts. And before we go any farther in kind of describing this, I do want to uh, just kind of drop some brief content warnings for what's in this anime. Cause it's like, it's like pretty intense for being quote unquote aimed at young girls. <laughs> like it's, yeah. if you buy the Blu-ray and you pop it in, there is an unskippable content warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like a suicide was, hotline number. <laughs> yeah, It was a, a strong content warning that basically says, if you are struggling with suicide and suicidal ideation, just don't watch the show. Yeah, that is probably the most prominent content warning mm-hmm. that I would throw out there. There's a lot of like ruminating on suicide and, and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, there is a lot of that too, including mm-hmm. um, drug addiction and um, violence, physical violence <laughs> and bullying. Oh yes. man, the bullying. Um, Physical so violence. much bullying. Did you say drug addiction already? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, drug addiction, um, very much so. Also, mm-hmm. like, disease um, is in there. Yeah. And, like, borderline assault situations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's weirdly and... one of the only shoujo of its era where I don't think you actually have to warn for um, sexual assault very much. It's just, mm-hmm. it doesn't the kind that you're thinking of doesn't really happen. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Um, I would say in the very last handful of episodes, also maybe um, drinking alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is also an element of romantic love between siblings. If that is something you're not, not ready to watch a classic anime about. (laughs) Um, That's the one I was just about to ask. Should we warn for that? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I think it's important. Uh, yeah. That is that's is something good to know going in. Honestly, yeah, that's definitely good to know. I would put most of the content warnings as being remarkably similar to Utna. Yeah. Less less, less rape. Less, <laughs> yes. Yeah, less of that, but otherwise I would put the content warnings as very similar to that. If you can handle Utna, I think you can handle this. If you honestly, if you've seen and you love Utena, I think you owe it to yourself to watch Dear Brother because of how much like 
homage there is just mm-hmm. like um and chances are you will enjoy them both um also listed on at least wikipedia under the content warnings is uh lesbianism which is my favorite content warning <laughs> oh my god that's not a content warning that is a selling point yeah. right that's a promise kind of if you if you're viewing this if you're viewing lesbianism as a content warning then um uh, i don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah there is a lot of heavy elements of yuri in this and that's like putting it mildly <laughs> yes yes okay i think that does it for the content warnings now yeah let's talk a little bit about ryoko ikeda the manga was serialized in the magazine called margaret which i think is still running today if yep. that's correct yeah um in 1975 uh same magazine that rosa versailles ran in don could you tell us maybe a little bit about ryoko ikeda just for anyone who's approaching this for the first time sure so Ryoko Ikeda is one of the most prolific shoujo manga artists whose uh, work in the 70s was incredibly important and influential, not to just shoujo manga, but to basically all manga across the board. Uh, She was part of the Year 24 group, which is a group of shoujo manga artists whose work became just staggeringly influential during the 70s, uh, and what many scholars now refer to as the, you know, quote, golden age of shoujo manga. Mm-hmm. So uh, like others in this group, uh, Ikeda's work often played with concepts of sexuality and gender, uh, along with other heavy and sometimes controversial topics uh, for the time, which before this was kind of unheard of, uh, because shoujo manga before this was typically just like, cute fluffy stories for girls that were predominantly written and drawn by men Mm. um so ryoko ikeda uh she also loved playing with historical fiction which is pretty apparent for like things like rosa versailles and claudine like you mentioned earlier um but her knack for compelling romance and drama was like hugely influential on so many things like everything from uh Takorazuka musicals mm-hmm. to um, Kentaro Miura's Berserk uh, <laughs> to Sailor Moon. So we're still feeling the influence of her work uh, to this day, basically. Absolutely. Just for a n- little bit of a little bit more time period context, um, Ikeda wrote Rosa Versailles starting in 1972. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, that's the same year that Devil Man the manga also was serialized. Huh which just a little bit of historical context. Um, and, Two gay icons. Yeah. And then uh, Dear Brother happened in 1975, and then Claudine was written after it in 1978. I think there was another one or two series in between those two, but just kind of um, for her timeline, just for kind of getting a sense of when that happened. We're mostly going to be talking about the anime because the manga is not actually licensed in English. Um, never has been, to my knowledge, Nope. Nope. Is licensed in a couple other languages like French. Um, yeah, I was going to say you can easily find it in French if you can read French. Yeah. <laughs> or if you just like looking at it. Yeah. Um, but the anime being made in 1991 um, was made by another huge figure, Osama Dezaki. Don, could you tell us a little bit about him? Okay, so I love the work of Osama Dezaki. Um, he is one of the most highly regarded anime directors. 
uh, a man who got his start basically at the very beginning of what we think of as mainstream TV anime by being an animator and episode director on Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy. Mm-hmm. And this is very important to keep in mind because since he was there at anime's infancy, he knew that for the most part, TV anime was working with very limited animation. Because to save time and money, there were ways to animate things that would make them look, like, impressive. When in reality, there was just very minimal movement involved or shortcuts to make, you know, images have more impact. So this is what led to a lot of techniques that Dezaki would become famous for, such as the use of dramatic repeat cuts, uh, which are also known as a stutter cut or a triple take. Um, where we see a frame or several frames shown repeatedly in succession. Uh, in Dezaki's case, usually in threes. Sometimes and so, even more. <laughs> yes, sometimes like four or five or six. Yes. It's, it, especially in Dear Brother. Like, it's very, very uh, heavily used yeah. <laughs> in and Dear Brother. It's amazing because um, it's done for budget saving, but when he uses it, it's amazing. Yeah, yes. so... Um, the other big thing Dezaki was known for was what um, we kind of think of as those frames that look like a pastel chalk freeze frame. Uh, those are known as a postcard memory or in the anime industry, a harmony cell. Oh, so these these were used to emphasize a very important or critical or dramatic moment. Uh, the most iconic and well-known of these examples probably, probably being... Uh, the last shot of Ashita no Joe, which sort of became a meme in animation <laughs> uh, and is still like highly referenced to to this day. Um, Ashita no Joe was also uh, the mark of the beginning of Dezaki working almost exclusively with character designer uh, Akio Sugino, who gave most of mm. Dezaki's work that very distinctive style that we dis- that we like associate with his work. Uh, like, even to this day. Uh, he basically did character designs for every one of Dezaki's major works until Dezaki passed away. Wow. So, obviously, uh, Dezaki worked on many extremely popular and well-known things, uh, but most relevant to this podcast would probably be things like Aim for the Ace, uh, Nobody's Boy Remy, and, you know, obviously the other big Ryoko Ikeda work, uh, The Rose of Versailles, uh, though mm-hmm. he took over from episode 19, That's right. which ironically, Sugino had done the character designs for that series before Dezaki even became <laughs> part of it. <laughs> so that always made me wonder if that was one of the reasons he was brought on. But I don't know. Like, there's <sighs> it, it's really hard to find specific information about why that production had so many like issues mm-hmm. in the middle of it. Um, but uh, his knack for incredibly crafted dramas made him an ideal director for shoujo anime that was coming out at the time because adapting those like really seemingly over-the-top emotions to a visual language, uh, his, his, uh, his style was not only very effective, but it was very dynamic and it was easy to digest and understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so this made him incredibly influential, obviously, and still is to this day. Like, as I said before, Asha no Joe probably has thousands of homages at this point. I think uh, most notably... I was going to mention oh, Gurren Wagen. if you ever saw that. They just straight up copied yes. that shot. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was going to say most notably Guren Lagan, like totally just, you know, did an Ashta no jo <laughs> for for Kamina without spoiling that. Um, but also Gainax, you know, basically used Aim for the Ace as the groundwork for Gunbuster. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Evangelion episode 18 basically has a scene that's an entire recreation of a scene from Dear Brother. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. What scene are you talking about? Um, it's the scene where they are, um, Nanako and I think it's Tomoko are in the playground, um, talking on the swing set. Yes. And basically they're in episode 18 of Evangelion. They recreate that with Asuka and, um, oh gosh, what's her name? The other school girl Ray? that's not Ray. Um, oh, oh, oh yes. The, oh my uh, the gosh. class president. Oh, Hikaru. Hikaru. Hikaru, Hikaru. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Because, I, and obviously there's the whole, like, there's a Ray and an Asuka in Evangelion mm -hmm. and right. Asuka Ray, you know, there's... <laughs> yeah. uh, the, nice. the nerds at Gainax, you know, wearing their nerddom on their <laughs> sleeve again. Um, but uh, uh, most famously, the one, probably the easiest uh, thing to point to for uh, Dezaki's influence would be uh, Ikuhara was super heavily influenced by Dezaki mm -hmm. and uh, Dear Brother specifically which you can see in the visuals and the stylings of things like Utena and um, mm -hmm. also like Yuri Kuma Arashi oh, yeah. has a lot of very similar visuals uh, and even, like, some of the settings in Dear Brother, if you compare them to Yurikuma Arashi, are very, very similar. <laughs> mm. I've definitely been um, thinking a lot about that uh, as we were watching this, that I think if I went back and watched Utena again, I think I would understand it more. Mm -hmm. And, like, I mm -hmm. understand where a lot of these things came from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, fun fact, Osama Dezaki worked on the original Frosty the Snowman. Uh, oh. he, also, <laughs> he also worked on Rainbow Bright. Uh, and he also did a 90s uh, religious anime with Tezuka <laughs> called In the Beginning, The Bible Stories. I have Whoa, read about this. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I Just hope it's fun fact to throw out there. <laughs> yeah, if you're approaching this, if you haven't seen stuff like Ashino Dojo and Aim for the Ace and like Rose of Versailles, maybe your only exposure to Dezaki, the difference in like his development of his craft between Rosa Versailles and Dear Brother is like staggering. Just like, yes. I mean, I'm sure he had oh, more yeah. resources by 1991, but like he has honed all of his techniques so well by Dear Brother. He like everything is like so intensely dramatic in Dear Brother, but it's all played so like evenly in tone that it just never drops even yes. for a second. It's so sincere and just like over the top, but it works. It mm -hmm. works sincerely, which is really fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And the, uh, the uh, techniques that you're talking about with like the stutter shots and things like that, you would honestly never guess that they are also a budget saving device because it feels like the only way that you could communicate this, mm -hmm. the, the kind of drama that, that goes on in the show. Yep. It just feels like they're made, made to be told this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From a technical standpoint, it, his, his, uh, his work is really fascinating because it's so visually effective and impactful. But at the same time, you if you really look at it, you're like, oh, these aren't even really animated that much. They're not yeah. moving very much. They're not doing all these elaborate 
like animated scenes or anything. There's not a lot of action or anything. A lot of it is like very intense close-ups and, yes. and mm-hmm. uh, you know, very sort of soft things going on with not a lot of movement. Like there's, you know, fluttering cherry blossoms or there's, you know, birds flying by, but like sometimes that's it. Yeah. And you go like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this actually is animated kind of minimalistically mm-hmm. if you think about it, but it still looks incredibly beautiful so it's like watching a series of paintings yeah it is one of the most gorgeous series i have ever seen to the point that i'm kind of surprised that it was a tv production second especially for the period it's so much prettier looking and when it's done and when the animation kicks in really hard it looks so much better than most of its peers. Like it looks like mm-hmm. a high budget OVA for 39 mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah. It never yeah. stutters. Not for a second. It's beautiful all the way through. It, it really highlights how like you can still make a really beautiful anime and not really put so much time and uh, resources into like, Oh, it has to have like all these you know, incredibly detailed animated sequences. Like, if you're smart about your production and your technique, you can make something that's incredibly beautiful that doesn't, you know, work the hell out of your staff and uh, mm-hmm. uh, drain them. In, uh, which is kind of relevant to, you know, today's, you know, climate in animation. It is. And I think uh, a modern example that we've seen of that recently was um, Rakugo anime. Ooh. Was another one that yeah. was very... Um, sparsely sparsely animated but still very very affecting and very dramatic absolutely if you're a fan of totally uh uh showa showa genroku rakugo shinju you absolutely would find things to love in your brother yes. as well it's the same oh, like interpersonal 100%. drama mm-hmm. intrigue and just like uh homoeroticism uh, yeah actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. and like also just like an angst that is just pervasive throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing yeah yeah same. an angst a yearning like mm-hmm. those very intense feelings like do you like regret 100%. <laughs> do you love pain you... <laughs> do you love having a good cry <laughs> oh my god why do all my favorites hurt me all right i will also say uh just to just because we have covered rosa versailles on this podcast as well um funnily enough rosa versailles is a manga that is 82 chapters and got turned into a 40 episode anime um so it kind of it kind of gallops through its plot uh however dear brother the manga is 17 chapters long and is a 39 episode anime so yes. it really stretches its content like it never like, it never feels yeah it's there's no filler episodes it never feels like it's dragging but it just like chews on every plot yes. point and asks how every character is feeling about it and what and like just draws parallels and there's so much symbolism it's just chock full of like emotions yeah it feels like it just sort of picks apart the manga and gives everything space to breathe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's definitely an instance of the the studio was given this story and they were like oh we can do so much with this yeah the last time i've seen something that went that hard on the expanding was rare but as much as i like rare yeah. i gotta say in that case the manga is better this is one of the <laughs> yeah. only times I will ever say that I think the animated version is the definitive version of the story. I agree. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, 100%. Like, I I haven't read all of the manga, because I think I came to the series at a time when, you know, scanlations were still kind of like a new thing. Um, so, like, I found a couple chapters, and I read them, and I was like, uh, it's okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the anime might be better. So mm-hmm. I just never really, I, I think I just dropped it after that and never thought of <laughs> picking it back up again. Speaking of uh, how did you first encounter uh, Dear Brother, how did you first like hear about or see or get a hold of Dear Brother? Uh, Don, let's start with you. Oh, so since I'm an old person, <laughs> um, <laughs> I came to Dear Brother back in the, I want to say mid to late 90s. Uh, first, uh, I was at like an anime convention or a comic convention. I can't remember which. And, um, it was, um, pretty common back then that somebody would make a sort of like mix videotape of like tons of different like openings and anime or openings and endings of anime and Mm. just like put it in a, you know, VCR and just have it playing at random times when there was nothing else going on. And I remember seeing the opening and thinking, I don't know what this is, but this is really pretty. (laughs) Um, And I asked somebody like for a list of like what was being shown on the thing and uh, they were like, oh, well, we don't have a full list, but I can tell you that's um, made by the Rose of Versailles person. Mm. And I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't realize there was more anime made by the Rose of Versailles person. And I really liked that. So I was like, time to do some investigating. <laughs> and I found um, the fan subgroup, the Techno Girls on the internet, you know, the very <laughs> early internet. Uh, back when they had, I think, a GeoCities page. <laughs> Amazing. And um, I found that they were doing tapes. Like, you can, you could send them a check or a money order for a specific amount, and they would send you a shiny tape of <laughs> the first few episodes of Dear Brother. Wow. And uh, that was how I got the first tape. And I don't remember if I ever got any more directly from them or if I got them from someone else who had them already. Um, I just remember that first specific tape I did get directly from the Techno Girl fan subgroup. Um, And I was like, wow, this is definitely not what I expected it to be. Uh, Because I was thinking it would be more of like a another (laughs) Rose of Versailles thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. I'm into it. Um, I don't think I ever finished watching the whole thing back in the VHS days because, you know, longer running series were, you know, very expensive to collect yeah. on Yeah, I believe VHS. they didn't even finish making it, if that, if my research is correct. Yeah, I, th- I think they kind of staggered a bit because it was really difficult to get the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the laser discs for the series mm-hmm. for a while, because back then that's what you had to work with if you wanted the best picture for a VHS fans up. You had to try to find the laser discs, and sometimes that was hard and very expensive and time consuming. Uh, because this is pre, like you know, eBay, pre, um, you know, ordering everything online. Like this was, you know, a lot of hard work. And I think I finally got to watch the entire series when I found it online. Uh, somebody had ripped all of the Techno Girls, like, finished 
fan subs once they actually finished it and had put like a torrent of like all of them together and wow. but most of them were like vhs rips so they were really <laughs> bad <laughs> um and uh then in gosh was it 2012 uh vicky both vicky and i think hulu got mm. streaming rights for the entire series and i was like oh i can't remember if i ever finished that and so i did watch the whole thing then and um, the the subtitles were kind of like, eh, but, you know, it got the point across. And I was like, okay, wow, that was a lot. That was not what I was expecting at all. Uh, but yeah, so it took me literally years to finish the series. Amazing. Wow. Diana, how about you? When did you first run into Dear Brother? Well, when I was a younger teenager... I really, I got into Rose of Versailles via Utna, which, mm -hmm. oh lord, mm -hmm. one of my mom's students was a family member of Frederick Schott, and um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and loaned me some of the uh, very early Rose of Versailles, the first few volumes. There was only two of those done in English. And they're mythical enough that I found a debate on the Anime News Network forums about, did the second one even happen? And I was just like, Whoa. yes, it happened. I read it. <laughs> it exists. I've held it in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I got, and then um, when I took French, I finished up Rose of Versailles that way. And I came across this series because... I heard that the anime was beautiful and also by the same people as Rose of Versailles. So um, that was how I first encountered it. But because it was ages ago, I couldn't find the um, I couldn't find the ending of the anime from the same from the source I was using. So I wound up going and reading the manga for that. And I can't even remember when I went back and finished the anime, but it was long enough ago that I definitely did not remember very much of it and had to do a complete series rewatch for this, which was good because, wow, there was so much <laughs> that I missed back then. Being able to speak a tiny bit of Japanese really made a difference for what I was able to get out of it. So yeah, that was my story. It is full of the internet was really wild back in the day and also Crazy. thank goodness for actually good releases now i am so glad we don't yeah. have to live in those days anymore yeah so did you run into the techno girl subs at all i think that was what i did but it was back when i only had most like the slowest internet so i was downloading i was downloading fan subs like one episode as a time from um <sighs> wow. from those you know like stream share like stream load or something like that those oh, those, those old servers where it's like you can get on our server we and you can download a few episodes per month and then they didn't even have all of the episodes but yeah. back <gasps> wow. that was back when i didn't have enough bandwidth to handle a torrent <laughs> <laughs> wow i know uh, i'm not so even oh, i'm not days. i'm not even that old i just got into this really young that's hilarious <laughs> Um, I, I just want to mention briefly, we got a Twitter question from at Kunzaito. 
Um, that said, any chance you'll talk about Techno Girls? Yes. Uh, IMO, they were pioneers for a careful, even educational approach to anime translation. It was revelatory for me. Alas, they never finished their version, uh, I guess, originally. Um, also, how might the endings change if Brother Dear Brother were remade today? Um, that we'll probably cover in the spoiler section yes. next episode. Can't talk about the endings right now. Um, I do think it's interesting to mention uh, this person abbreviated Dear Brother as BDB for Brother Dear Brother because I believe that's what Techno Girls named that it. That is. That is, in mm-hmm. fact, what it was mm-hmm. on the fans on the fan subs. Yeah. And if you look at uh, old posts about this online, people talk about it the same way. Um, it's just, it's so funny how like, uh, like fan sub and even scanlation culture will take over uh, a fandom and then there's like a shift once there's an official release to people. Mm-hmm. It's just, I love, I love that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it was like almost impossible for me to research Dear Brother without running into people talking about Techno Girls and how just like they influenced the Western fandom, uh, for people's view of this. Um, Erica Friedman also has a blurb about them on, uh, her blog, okazu.yurikon.com, which if you ever come across anything Erica's written, absolutely worth reading. Um, she has amazing things to say about like the history of Yuri fandom in the West because she like helped found it basically. <laughs> um, she says, uh, it was fan subbed by a bastion of Victorian worldviews. Each volume of the anime came with notes on culture, references, and a full set of what we ought to be feeling and understanding. It wasn't enough for us to know that the rain, the wind, the trains, and the flocks of birds were symbolic. We were told exactly how to interpret them. Smiley face. <laughs> Which I thought was fascinating because you don't get the like translator's note on fan subs as much these days. Yeah. Uh, but back in the Wild Wild West, it was like <laughs> just the uh aesthetics of whoever decided to fan sub i guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um also i saw notes that they did not believe that there was actually yuri in the series <laughs> yeah that always like confused me uh, <laughs> i was like uh, really uh, no, there is <laughs> you're wrong uh, the techno girls were kind of notorious for being very like this is our opinion and if you don't uh agree with it well tough don't like don't read (laughs) yeah yeah it was very don't like don't read (laughs) from back in the day the techno girls were kind of also notorious for fan subbing things that like were really cool works that nobody was really talking about that's so neat or or interested in uh they kind of boasted themselves as like we're fan subbing the things that nobody else is like the 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 sleeper hits that you should be mm-hmm. watching uh <laughs> sort of thing which which like yeah you should have been watching dear brother Agreed. um but it it's really interesting to me how they were doing fan subs back then because they sort of uh started the idea of crowdfunding mm. uh their their releases so not only were they basically reaching out to anyone they could find, like, internationally uh, to help them with translations. They would specifically, like, find people, you know, all over who could do translations for them. Wow. And they would kind of assign, like, okay, this person's going to help with this episode. This person's going to help with this episode. So that, like, the output kind of ran a little bit more smoothly. Wow. And also, they had a thing on their website where if you donated a specific amount of money to Techno Girls to help pay for the translations, because they were paying their translators. Wow. 
That's which wild. was kind of unheard of at That's the time. That's ahead of its yeah. time. Uh, but they were also using that money to buy the materials wow. because they were very expensive. And if you paid a specific amount of money to them, it was my understanding that you would get your name like in the credits as like a patron of the techno <gasps> girls. Insane. Oh my god, that is like so ahead of its time. Yeah, we like yeah. still do right? that sometimes. Uh huh. Crazy. Wow. Which. Like, that's kind of what we would think of as, like, maybe a Kickstarter campaign for a uh-huh. small anime company to do something like that. And they were doing this, like, pre any of that. Um, now, since I was never directly involved in anything, this is just from what my understanding is when they have explained this in the past. So right. if I get any of the details wrong, uh, you know, please don't come for me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this was... Um, specifically how they got such high quality translations was they were actually seeking people who could translate well. That's it wasn't so- just mm-hmm. like I've, I took a Japanese class, so I vaguely know what they're <laughs> saying. Uh, some of, mm. some of the people that actually worked with techno girls went on to become paid translators for things like Bandai. Wow. That's so cool. Like if, if you look up, um, back in the day when Anime News Network used to run news blurbs on what the fan subgroups were doing, this is how, <laughs> this is how old we're talking, how long ago, um, they actually had like some news blurbs like, oh, so-and-so from the Techno Girls has now been hired by Bandai to do official <laughs> translations of this series. So like, I mean, it's kind of wild to to think of, like, what was going on in fan subculture back then versus, versus like, what fan subculture kind of looks like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if that interests you, Don actually dug up an article from, I think it was, like, 1999 on ANN that was talking about that. And I'll, uh, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes if you want to check that out. Um, yeah, yeah, and I also found uh, the the very old page for they had of uh, uh techno girls had for dear brother um Excellent. which which i think i sent to you uh but if not i'll send it to you again later yeah, um but also i too. i thought it was really funny that also um i think one of the uh people involved with techno girls actually found dolls that look like uh ray's doll from what? the show and was selling them oh. <laughs> god, this is so fascinating oh, oh i love all this like god. fandom they history. were like oh my they were like oh my god we found these china dolls that look exactly like ray's doll if you want one you have to send like i think it was 40 dollars to wow. you know, whatever their address was <laughs> and they so would funny. send it to you okay me over yeah. here like who used to be really into ball joint dolls, like $40? That's a good price. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, these were little, like, you know, little uh, China dolls that they probably found in, like, some some toy shop in, uh, you know, God knows where. (laughs) So funny. Well, I think uh, that was a lot of discussion about fandom history, but I think it's worth it just because, like, I feel like shoujo gets, like, uh, just kind of, like, shoved to the side a little bit when people think about anime at least in like american fandom when people talk about anime think about anime shoujo is kind of like is treated like it's the frosting on the cake of anime rather than like a core part of what makes up mm-hmm. like anime and the classics and just in terms of works that are insanely influential that you see echoed in like thousands of anime that come after it like 
not only was Ikeda and Dezaki that influential, but like Dear Brother, you can see stuff that you see in Dear Brother happen in like everything going forward. It's like mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is this is the meat of anime. It's not like the fluff. Yes. Yeah, and like I mentioned earlier, like um the creator of Berserk legitimately said like Ryoko Ikeda was a huge influence on Berserk, which is not a shoujo series. No. Like and that that's something that like I keep trying to press upon people. It's like don't just read one genre of manga. Yes. Like try to expand your horizons because like these people were so influenced by so many things mm-hmm. and not all of those were just like one specific genre you know they read tons and tons of things so like these uh, these shoujo pieces are like super important to not just you know shoujo manga but all manga like across the board yes they influenced basically everything that came after that I even think there's quite a chance that Dear Brother might have influenced parts of JoJo. And I'm not even joking. The timeline lines up perfectly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's like... I know. When when you, when you brought that up, I was like, oh, my God. It, that very well could be. It could be. <laughs> We're, we can't... We can't know for sure, but the, it's like you said, the timeline does make it possible. You get a lot of people who think that just out-of-context pictures they've seen of Mariko is Yukako from JoJo with bangs. Except Dear Brother the Manga came way before. The anime ended in summer 1992, and then Yukako debuted in the, in the, or in the manga in fall 1992. So I'm like, hmm, this timeline is perfect for that to have been the case. Awfully convenient. I'm a a Yukaku truther. I'm I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) And we do know that uh, Araki is a fan of Ikeda's. He's referenced Rosa Versailles before. That's so cool. Also, his, like, uh, tendency to love to just, like, be influenced and reference things that he has recently yes. <laughs> consumed. It's not. It's not like this would be the oh, first true. time <laughs> that that he lifted something pretty wholesale. not wholesale, but that he <laughs> was very heavily influenced by something that yeah. went straight into the manga. <laughs> uh, but in a really awesome way. Honestly, their characters have uh, they share quite a bit of DNA as well. They, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is it is definitely not they just character really design. It is also like a lot. Uh, being obsessive, a and, homicidal possessiveness. <laughs> Yeah, Mariko and Yukako could totally be just distant cousins. Yep. Yes. Long lost, long lost sisters. Oh, beautiful. Well, okay. Uh, real quick, Kay and I will talk about how we uh, came to it. Actually, Kay, do you remember how I like how we finally I, turned this show on? I saw the. Um, I think it was at Feezy on Twitter was doing a uh, live live tweet. I was just posting the most spectacular, incredible screenshots mm. that were coming across my timeline every day. And I was like, Danny, I think we should watch this. Uh, I think it looks really good. If, and it had been on your radar before yeah, already. Yeah, I think I had also been trying to convince you to watch it. And we were yes. just like in a slump and not, and not doing much. And we yep. were like, ah, oh, we'll get to it eventually. Mm-hmm. And then I saw people saying that it would be, you know, not streaming forever. So I was like, all right, we've got to crack down and watch this. Yep. But actually, I think what 
uh, turned me on to it. It was the same thing that happened to me with Legend of Galactic Heroes. <laughs> exactly the same. Was I saw a person with flowing long blonde hair yeah. in beautiful classic uh, character design. Uh, and I was like, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> What's that from? <laughs> <laughs> Which is also oh, how no. a lot of people approach Rose of Versailles as well. So I think it's appropriate. Um, but <laughs> Danny's got a type. I just like, I am such a sucker for character design. Like if I love the character design and I like the Seiyu and aesthetic, I'll, I'll watch a show, even if I don't particularly love it. And so I was like, mm. that's what I came in expecting. I was like, everyone says like, this is an important historical piece of mm -hmm. show. Like we just talked about, like, it's so important to the like integrity of anime. And like, I should study this as a historical piece. But then I turned it on. I was like, I cannot put this show down. Like I <laughs> love this show. <laughs> and like we, it's so bingeable. It's like, it is, we talked about how melodramatic it is, and it is, but, like, it's also just so, like, raw and real in so many ways. Yeah. And like you said earlier, it's just very sincere about everything. Yes. It never takes any of this overdramatics as, like, oh, it's a joke or yeah. it's, like, isn't this ridiculous? Like, no, no this is 100% sincere. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely expected the, like, melodrama and the... um quality and that you know the melodrama sort of propels you to keep watching so you know what happens next i did not expect it to be so rich in symbolism and so rich in like uh, thematic meaning god this baby can fit so many symbols in it yeah <laughs> <laughs> this baby can fit so much symbolism in it literally like i i i was going through our list of symbols that we wanted to cover on this i had to cut some of them because i was like there's no time to talk about all these <laughs> <laughs> and like I know, it's, that's it's so saying much. our podcast which is basically just talking about like uh dramatic devices and symbolism in yep. <laughs> like i was um, i was when i was doing my rewatch to prepare for this i had like a whole bunch of reference pages up for japanese flower symbolism because that uh -huh. plays a large part in oh you this, betcha in the story you could do an entire podcast on just the flower symbolism <laughs> in this show. Flowers were... in my shoujo? It's more yeah. likely than you think. There were like some flowers showed up in the show that I was like, I don't even have time to look this up. Like, <laughs> I'm absolutely certain that it means something. Yeah. I'm just going to go down a rabbit hole if I try to figure out what kind of flower that is next. Yeah. I think we started this in December of last year. I don't know. Maybe it was spring. I don't know. Somewhere in there. That's a depression. Makes it run all together. Um <laughs> But yeah, we just we started watching it on Retro Crush, just fell in love with it instantly mm -hmm. from episode one. Um, by the time we were a third of the way through, I was like, we are going to cover this on Anime is Lit. Like, oh, it's yeah. just got to happen. And by the time we were two thirds of the way through, I was like, I think I think I like this as much or better than I like Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Like it is it is like top it's like top five favorites anime of all time material for me easily yeah that's exactly the same thing that i wrote in my notes i was like i it's up there with legend of the galactic heroes for me it is yeah it is right up there a, like emotional parallel with rakugo for me and like the fact that it it takes the time to tell this much like insanely dark insanely complicated and sincere stories about teenage girls not something you see every day and like really i think something that everyone should watch just to like I don't know, be in the mind of a teenage girl and take it seriously for like 39 episodes. <laughs> yeah, it, it mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't ever devalue the things that the girls are going through. Yes. It is always like this is not like a frivolous teenage thing that's happening to you. It's something that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and it's literally life or death like yes. <laughs> constantly. <laughs> yeah, because when you're a teenager, like these thing these are the things that really mean life or death to you. Like e even if they 
seem frivolous uh from the outside looking in like when you are the focal point of it like this is like oh my god this is so like important to me and my life right now mm-hmm. and nothing nothing could change that and that is very much like oh in your teenage feelings like it, it is very akin to like the teenage uh experience yeah and yep. not just things that feel that scale but the things that genuinely are like there is lots mm-hmm. of threat of suicide constantly like, oh yeah you are yeah. worried for these characters lives and i mean that literally in the like suicidal and homicidal sense a lot throughout this series <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's like this this isn't like that far-fetched like this shit does happen in real Mm -hmm. high school real in reality and it's like it gives equal weight to that and to the just like everyday turmoil that Uh, monaco is feeling yeah the the bullying Mm -hmm. and the stuff that happens at school is yeah it's real stuff that really drives people to suicide and is that like impactful on teenagers Mm. uh anyway all right that's my little rant on how much we really really love this show let's kind of we talked about it a little bit obviously but just uh in terms of speaking about this show as like a drama and a shoujo um i was thinking about the terms like camp when they talk about this and i think uh, people talk about this as like a campy shoujo more in reference to like how like aesthetically intense everything is um, oh and the, like high high drama I, like, don't agree with the classification of camp at all. I, I do that, not for the anime either. I think that, yeah, the manga, it's kind of debatable. But for the anime, I think camp requires, like, a level of affectation that this doesn't have. Yeah, like silliness. Like, stuff that is so intense, it just falls over into the land of silliness. Yeah, like... And I don't think this does that. There are arguments to be made that, like, a few characters in particular have speech patterns that are <laughs> so over the top that it you can tell that it's an affectation. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the series itself is campy. It just mm-hmm. means that these characters have very defined ways they want to present themselves, and because they're teenage girls, they uh, don't really have much of a sense of scale, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think camp is kind of misplaced as a description, because campiness usually has some sort of indication of self-awareness yeah and there's no there's nothing like that in Mm. dear brother this is like like we were saying earlier it's a hundred percent sincere these are like real very intense feelings that these characters are feeling um from the outside looking in they can feel so intense that sometimes you might kind of laugh and go what the fuck (laughs) uh but that doesn't negate that these are like serious moments yeah. in the show. I would say it's analogous to sh- when Shonen does that. Like Shonen is constantly over dramatic, melodramatic, over the top. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and the stakes are like life or death. When like a situation doesn't necessarily warrant it. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. In reality, that might never happen. But like, and people are just like crying and screaming and like having a life crisis. But like. People are like, oh, that's cool in Shonen. And like, it's that's action when it happens in Shonen. When like the same stuff happens in Shoujo, but because it's set at a school, that's like boring somehow. And I'm like, I completely it's, disagree. Yeah. And, like, it's and, the same and, and an all drama. female cast. Yes. And yeah. It's I'm like, like nobody. Uh, I see the sexism you did there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody says that One Piece is necessarily campy for making you cry over a literal ship. 
but then your <laughs> brother. What's what's the difference about you know me crying over you know them uh, like Nanako crying over a doll? Yeah, and like, like crying Kenshiro. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think if you take Shonen seriously, you should give this a chance to be taken as seriously as that. In my opinion, definitely. It's it's so funny how to me like there, there's such a hole in uh, Western shoujo history it's like true. there's so many there's so many classics that were literally the foundation of like really important or well-known or well-beloved series mm-hmm. uh that we're we've never had officially in english mm-hmm. i think and people watch things like oron and they're like ha 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 making fun of shoujo but like they don't know what it's coming yeah from. they don't know what it's referencing yeah they don't realize that it's referencing a lot of things like the rose of for example Mm -hmm. uh because for the longest time rose of versailles wasn't available it wasn't easily accessible so if you didn't have the knowledge then you were just like oh funny cute uh shoujo anime with girl that pretends to be a boy oh like that's new and exciting it's like actually there's a rich history of shoujo doing that (laughs) and it says a lot about the american market for girls entertainment that even with this, there's a large history of girls and AFAB people getting really into anime because what scraps we have are still so much more than what was available for girls' entertainment at the time. Which, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. totally. God, I have some takes on that. <laughs> yeah, back in the 80s and 90s, like most of the anime that was brought over here was definitely targeted towards, you know, the traditional like male tastes, you know, like yeah. lots of action and violence and things like that. We didn't really see solid shoujo releases for years. Yeah. The I entire think that was absolutely reason biased people in the worst way. The entire reason I'm into anime is because Sailor Moon exists. <laughs> That's true for yeah. so many yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, and and I mean, that's saying something that like, you know, Sailor Moon was such a, it opened such a huge floodgate of like, people who were like, yes, more stories about strong girls. Where are the rest of the, the, the stories of strong girls? And it still took a long time for similar things to come out yeah. here officially. Because people thought that the reason why it was popular was because it was like the Power Rangers. Oh my god. Yeah. <sighs> And, you know, don't get me wrong, that probably was a small factor, but it was mostly like, oh, look, I see a thing where I can see myself in it. Yeah. Oh, wait, telling stories about girls matters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting that so many, like, uh, so many people who are into anime now share the same, like, saw the same things running on TV. Mm -hmm. We all were drawn in by the same, like, uh, things like Sailor Moon and um, Cardcaptor Sakura um, that ran on TV was just... Like, even those few things were so different from what was going on in American media at the time. It was enough to, like, draw us into... The entire medium. The entire medium of anime, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh. More shoujo in the States and the West. Yeah, every time I watch a discotheque licensing thing now, I'm like, come on, shoujo! (laughs) Come on, shoujo! Yeah, for real. (laughs) I'm so glad that we have good um, Princess Tutu uh, Blu-rays now. Oh, yeah. God, that oh. is another one. Actually, that one, how it got more popular in America, is very funny, but that's a that's a hijack I'll have to save for later. 
<laughs> Does it have to do with the AMV? Is because... it the AMV? Because I think oh, we mentioned that in our episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. That is literally the thing that got me to watch it, too. Yep, so me too. I can understand that. But that. also 4chan doing a meme about what I saw, what I expected, what I got, where it was like what they saw was a whole bunch of stereotypes, and what they got was a pair of ninjas playing the guitar at each other. <laughs> Good shit. I am not joking in that I know, like, 25 people who only watch Princess Tutu because of the Guitar Ninjas memes. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, uh, bring it back to Dear Brother really quick. Uh, I have uh, I have something on my outline that just says Inherent Eerie Elements TM. Um, you know when you watch, like, a shonen and it's so manly that it's just – there's just homoeroticism in there because – uh, that's, you know, it just happens. Um, that happens in this with Yuri, but also the like literally written into the plot as like intrigue and deliberately written in is the like female, female romance of Dear Brother. Oh, yeah. Um, I just kind of wanted the two of you to speak on that and even Kay as well. Just like as someone, uh, with like, <laughs> with such leanings yourselves like how does that like resonate with you just on a like kind of a general level with the show i can say that this series was very different after i came out as bi because i can look back and at a lot of the scenes where the girls are like of course i'm not having a crush on another girl and i'm like bitch you are <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about you in about 10 years. Let's see how it's going. Uh, <laughs> I think it was similar for me because when I first watched it, I was a, a you know, teen and I still hadn't figured out <laughs> like, oh, you also like girls, you dummy. Uh, <laughs> so like when I first watched it, like I was immediately attracted to the characters that that kind of present a little bit more um like uh androgynous or gender tm you know mm -hmm. gender fluid maybe mm -hmm. uh however you want to read into it and i was like oh it's such a shame that you know they're a girl because i would totally date them so pretty and i was and you know now you know i'm watching it again for the first time in a while i look back like gosh i was so stupid <laughs> I don't say you're stupid because that's like often how not just this anime, but like that's how a lot of manga and stuff treated those themes. They're like, oh, if only this was hetero. <laughs> like, I mean, it is. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Oh, if only we weren't both girls. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's a uh, a recognized not only anime genre but literary tradition in Japan. Yeah. To the mm -hmm. sort of a uh, uh, quasi romantic connections between teen girls that sort yeah. of guide their emotional development while they're in school and then they are released off to go and live their hetero lives are you talking about class s yes yeah, i'm class talking s. about class s yeah yeah historically um it's expected like if a teen girl goes through like a oh I, i'm interested in girls sort of like um quote phase uh -huh. mm -hmm. that they would grow out of it by the end of school mm -hmm. and then they would you know stop that and grow up and you know get married and have babies like expected of them you know yeah and it's like uh, it is like recognized as an important experience for them that they that they went through this phase but it is definitely expected to be fleeting yeah because it was 
It was supposed to be like practice for when they had a yes. real relationship. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> quote real. Yeah. That element is definite like I won't fool anybody. That element is absolutely present. The like mm-hmm. uh the like last minute straight washing is a thing that happens uh, mm-hmm. in Dear Brother, mm-hmm. like both in the manga and in the anime in different ways, but it spends so much time and so much energy dwelling on the like literal female female romance and how legitimate and real they are you're like this is so gay (laughs) yeah i mean we literally have a character in the series who is all like almost complete run of the show is talking about how boys are terrible they can't be trusted (laughs) i will never date them you don't want anything to do with them stay far far away from them Get them away from me. And then she's, like, talking about, ooh, I'd like to take a bath with you so we can, like, look at each other's bodies to one of the other girls. I love and looking I'm at like, your body. And I'm like, because <laughs> mm. we're just so beautiful. Why don't we appreciate that? And then she together. falls head over heels for the butchest character in the story. Yeah. And then it's, <laughs> yes. I just... Not to spoil too much, but the scene where she's where someone asks if she has a crush on the big butch, and she's just like, "How could I ever?" I mean, she's so manly, and then someone's like, "Well, why are you <laughs> blushing?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, just e- even even a, a female character uh, uh, presenting more masculine. It's like, oh no, oh get it away from me, <laughs> yeah. oh. And it's not just, like, this stuff is, like, referenced or implied. Like, characters say, like, in the manga and the anime, the characters are like, I am in love with so-and-so. I have a crush on so-and-so. I wish I could go on a date with so-and-so. There is a date, uh, two, in fact, dates uh, between women. Like, it's, like, and, like, it's literally there. (laughs) It's it's literally There's literally, like, embracing, like, women embracing and saying, I love you. Saying and, and yeah. saying I love you with the really strong word for love. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like it's love. And that's not even getting into the flower symbolism. <laughs> it's kind of hard to deny that that is like baked into the series, like full stop. Yeah. Like, like we were saying earlier, like the techno girl saying like, oh, we don't see this as a Yuri series. It's like, hmm, really? It is really the only way you can make that argument is if you speak about uh, like Things that are sanctioned by the story as like, yes, now they are together and living happily ever after and they mm. are lesbians. <laughs> like, like yeah. that doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean it's not gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, like bisexuality and pansexuality exist. Yep. Like, you know, it, even with like the, you know, straight washing, like at the end, like that doesn't mean that it couldn't be queer still. Exactly. Mm hmm. And it's also, like, it's not very convincing, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're getting into spoiler it's territory. It's totally not convincing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. One thing I just wanted to mention really quick. Uh, two of the very significant characters have uh, nicknames, which is, uh, like, almost almost everyone calls them by their nicknames rather than their actual names. So it can get a little bit confusing if you're watching for the first time. Um Kaoru, the uh, uh, resident butch we referenced earlier, <laughs> she um, is the princely character. The younger girls call her Kaoru no Kimi or Prince Kaoru. Um, they like always call her that. 
even in very serious situations, which is a little bit funny sometimes. Um, which is a reference to um, the tale of Genji. Yes. I didn't catch that from the anime because I don't think they ever specifically mentioned they don't. the tale they don't. of Genji. They're just like, you know, like Kaoru Daisho. And I was like, oh, whomst? Yeah. <laughs> it makes... <laughs> yeah. The anime does sometimes show Kaoru represented by Kaoru from Tale of Genji. But... Mm-hmm. If you don't know the reference, you're like, huh? <laughs> yeah, it, it just... Like, um, I think they mention... I think someone mentions it once in passing. That's it. They do yeah, in the manga. They, they mention they, it more than they once. They do, yeah. They show her in like uh, the style of like uh, a traditional painting in, in traditional uh, princely historical clothing. Yeah. I also, when I was yep. doing a tiny bit of research on that, um, I found some uh, information about how not only is that directly a reference to uh, Tale of Genji, but also like that sort of character became a trope in classical literature oh really in other works like the the character of kaoru in the, in the tale of genji influenced other kaoru like characters mm-hmm. so it was like it mm-hmm. is classically a trope and when they are applying that to kaoru in the anime it's like she is that trope that's why they give her that nickname mm-hmm. so it's like it's plausibly something that a japanese audience would sort of at least Connect. emotionally recognize yeah it's not just like a princely like character in the sense that we see that repeated in anime now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, Array, the said character with the flowing blonde hair who looks mm-hmm. rather androgynous on purpose and straight up wears men's clothing sometimes. Uh, only people very close to her call her Ray, and her nickname is Sanjusta Sama, <laughs> um, which is a reference to Louis Antoine de Saint Just. The historic character from the French Revolution who sent many opponents to death by guillotine, uh, famous for his cold beauty. So, of course, the androgynous beauty Ray is uh, given the um, French Revolution character <laughs> parallel mm-hmm. because Ryoko Ikeda. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, mm-hmm. Ryoko Ikeda wants to go back to this, like, thematically. Mm-hmm. But also, that that nickname really does say a lot about how somebody views Ray. Yes. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I one of the one of the things that drew me to this was just seeing. I loved Rosa Versailles. I saw a character who looked basically very similar to Oscar, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to like this." And then there was uh-huh. Kaoru came on the scene, and I was like, two, two, <laughs> two androgynous characters. Ryoko Ikeda, you spoil us. Yeah, this baby she, can put so much gender in it. <laughs> she was just, she was just like, "Hey, remember when I made Oscar and Andre? That was great. Let's do yep. it again." <laughs> That but, that, but les- that but lesbians yeah, yeah she's like ins- but instead let's make andre a girl instead of an well Thank we won't you. get any like, on andre i like andre better that way yeah <laughs> right it's like oh uh, you somehow improved it the parallels basically end there because she's way nicer than andre oh much nicer than andre <laughs> oh, and yeah. like yeah she's a different character than andre but they oh, yeah. look quite but similar just in terms of appearance <laughs> yep uh Oh, yeah. We talked a little bit about in the opening. The reason that the show is called Dear Brother is because uh, the narrative device used throughout the entire thing, every single episode of the anime, is uh, Nanako explaining the events, uh, kind of like giving commentary on everything that we see happen by writing letters to her quote-unquote brother, um, which is like, it is introduced a bit weirdly and unclearly for a reason. So if you're like, why does she call him her brother? That will all become clear. Just stick with it. And um, the way that's used in every episode kind of like gives a different flavor to things, um, is used as a dramatic device. Um, it's really interesting and clever. And 
It is, and it's used as a dramatic device, especially to show Nanako's development. Mm -hmm. Because as she, as the show goes on, there's a shift in what she tells to her brother and how she tells, how she tells her parts of the story. Yeah. I also think it's important to point out that uh, her calling this man her brother or Oni-san, um, it's, it's kind of, this is like a cultural thing within mm -hmm. Japan where like, if you are close to like say an older male or female character, you sometimes refer to them as your brother or your sister, even when you're not related. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if, if it's confusing as why she's calling this guy who supposedly is not her brother, her brother, that is why it's kind of like a kin of like calling an older woman, um, that's very close to you, but even might not be related like your granny or your auntie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Don. Oh, yeah. We also wanted to mention, if we haven't sold you on this thing by now, um, <laughs> like we mentioned, it's loaded with symbolism and dramatic storytelling devices, but there's like so many you can't even catch them all. And it's just like you don't have to even you don't have to be able to pull apart any of them to understand what's going on. Yes. You just like emotionally like kind of sense what they mean. But there is also like a lot of value to be had in kind of like sinking into them and chewing on them and stuff. Yeah, I think it's definitely not necessary to be tracking anything specific when you're watching. Yes. It's just the kind of things that when they show up again, you like get goosebumps. Yeah. Um, do you like, I guess the only thing you pay attention for is stuff repeats a lot. Dazaki loves to use things to parallel uh, events or just like bring back like a visual motif he'll bring back again mm -hmm. um, or a, a sound motif he'll play again to be like, like as a callback to something that just like keep that in mind rather than like oh my gosh what does the doll mean yeah mm -hmm. uh, though of mm -hmm. course we'll get into that in episode two because yes. that's what this podcast is about <laughs> <laughs> we figure out what the doll means <laughs> uh oh yeah i just wanted to throw out a couple of examples just to like kind of give you a taste for um the kinds of stuff that they use um yeah personally my favorite and if you saw don's tweet about painting her thumbnail um one of the characters mariko <laughs> paints uh just her thumbnails red um, I assume it's not allowed to have nail polish at the school. I think that's what it's implied. And that's the reason why. And so she's just like secretly trying to be mature and mm -hmm. uh, like experiment with like femininity. I, and... I love that about her character because it is also reflected in the fact that she has red lips through the whole show. But she in the very beginning, she says she doesn't wear lipstick. She bites her lips to make them red. Um because the older girls think that that's attractive, which yeah. I know. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because like the older girls wear a lot wear uh, lipsticks, um, it's like Fukiko's whole thing. It, when when uh, uh, Nanako first sees her, she's like, wow, her lips are like so glistening and pink. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's just a really really uh, fun character. Yeah, uh, it's so revealing about her. Yeah, character revealing thing that Mariko is like feigning that kind of maturity feigning the same maturity as the older girls yeah and like yeah and uh that she like mentions that straight up in the first mm -hmm. episode but then dozaki returns to it over and over again like mm -hmm. he's like he like linger on the thumbs will like bring them into shot when it's important and like when you're reminded that she's just like mimicking the older mm -hmm. aesthetic and trying to be mature and stuff it's so cool how much dozaki is just like oh you you put a symbol in there all right and just like runs with it it's so mm -hmm. cool um, I tried to see if I could find anything if, like, that had some sort of significant meaning for, like, say, um, like, flagging down or, like, uh, I guess what we would 
consider uh, cruising in, like, American culture. Mm. Um, But I couldn't find anything substantial about that. Um, Ironically, in, like, the mid-2000s, there was a trend uh, that started on Tumblr, of course, uh, where where women would paint or anyone really would paint their nails uh, in a specific way or a specific color to denote um, if they were looking for um, a queer relationship, Whoa. maybe, which I thought was interesting. Very. Um, but I couldn't find which I couldn't but um, I, cu- I couldn't find anything like older or even like may- maybe specifically Japanese that would um suggest that maybe that was the intention or maybe referring to something like that yeah but that was the first thing that my head like kind of popped and i was like is this is this like some sort of secret lesbian thing? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thought oh yeah something that like that symbol carries through again um there's a scene where after like kind of seeing all the older girls and kind of feeling out the school um nanako is at home and she tries painting her thumbnail just like mariko it's just like paints it on and then she immediately wipes it off is like no no no, that doesn't fit me and then she tries it again like i don't know maybe and then she wipes it off again and like it's just so and like she doesn't say anything about it but you just see her doing that and you're like ah the symbolism (laughs) she's just doing it while she's on the phone to not uh to um tomoko just like the and then immediately after it cuts to the ending which is just a still of a doll who is playing dress up and trying on makeup and trying on uh lipstick and there's nail polish and you're like oh all the meanings and again you don't have to like be tracking any of that but like if you see it go by it'll just seep into your like subconscious while you're watching the show so much just yeah, like, and it's endless stuff like that and it looks like it's the same doll from the opening too. yes <laughs> man that doll sure has symbolism <laughs> which is interesting to me because like the whole show kind of plays around with like symbolism of duality yes and uh, and that doll one from the ending and the opening specifically was one of the first things that like kind of caught my attention in that regard. How like you know in the in the opening it looks like this, but in the ending it's like this. And it's like mm-hmm. hmm, yeah, interesting. <laughs> the doll has multiple meanings, has multiple mm-hmm. parallels with multiple characters. So if mm-hmm. you're like I'm not quite tracking on what the symbolism of that doll means, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the, the series expanding... will tell you most of the doll symbolism that's yeah I, but it is like subtext, an ever-expanding the subtext will genre. become text yes. yes yep all you have to know <laughs> is that uh ray says ma chérie la poupée a lot yes <laughs> oh uh another really neat symbol that is not not spoilery i wanted to mention um we were talking in our chat about the flowers on fukiko's dress um which one of you remembered what those were I brought up that originally I thought it was chrysanthemums. I think you're mm-hmm. correct. I think you're Yeah, Dawn figured out that it was probably chrysanthemums. I was the one who tracked down drawing enough drawings of chrysanthemums to go, Oh yeah, that's definitely them and then absolutely lost my mind and started looking up specifically Japanese symbolism for chrysanthemums. <laughs> and uh what were the meanings you found again? That chrysanthemums red chrysanthemums are a kind of Similar to the uh, red roses that you see Fukiko associated with, the mm-hmm. the uh, red chrysanthemums are for, like, kind of more of a passion and love type flower. White chrysanthemums, which some in a very few shots, her skirt does have white ones. Yeah. White chrysanthemums are both for truth and also sometimes for funerals. Mm-hmm. 
Um, was it was there some like royalty association with red chrysanthemums? Oh as well? yeah, um, that's just chrysanthemums in general is definitely a uh, high class flower, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, I read somewhere mm-hmm. that they're specifically uh, specifically related to the like imperial family. Yeah, that they are. So cool. Like the imperial crest has its chrysanthemum. Don't I, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Oh, that's so cool. So yeah, that's just like an inherent sense. Even when you like, you see her walk in with that dress, it's just so striking. You're like, whoa. Yeah. And it just looks so powerful. It is like, I'm pretty sure, we just rewatched the series again, Fukiko is the only one who wears like like ankle length silhouette Ooh, almost yeah. all the time. Floor length skirts. It like, it is oh, like yeah. a, um, it's like a, um, definitely a character design choice to give everybody nice silhouettes, but it goes with their maturity with uh, uh, Nanako and the other first years wearing like uh, little knee length skirts. Oh, right. All of the second years in the sorority especially have these like mid-calf pencil skirts mm. and then fukiko yep fukiko's skirt goes all the way to the ground and just like swishes after her like this uh, uh radiating aura yeah yeah fukiko's it, design mm-hmm. looks so much older than she is yes mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah she literally looks like uh, a a a 30 something <laughs> yeah. uh, woman or at least the way yeah. anime draws a woman who is 32 yes. <laughs> yeah. even uh, even the older girls in the sorority all look like adult businesswomen. Yeah, 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 they look we, like we were talking girl about bosses. that in the chat. Girl <laughs> How they're all dressed like like very high society, rich like thirty uh, some year old women yes. who uh, yeah. you know are on their their business lady brunch, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely on purpose. Like yeah. that that's a huge thrust of the attention in the story is like the class divides. And even the, like, appearance of class divides between characters and mm-hmm. high, high drama. Mm-hmm. Also, it's – I think it's worth mentioning here the um, the fact that Rei and Kaoru have nicknames is not specific to them. All of the older girls in the oh, sorority yeah. have, like, weird <laughs> classical – Medusa-sama. <laughs> yeah, there's one whose nickname is Medusa-sama. There is uh, – Mona Lisa-sama. Mona Lisa-sama. And I think Borgia – Mona Lisa, yeah. Borgia-sama. Borgia. Yeah. Borgia. Yeah. Borgia. <laughs> like i'm pretty sure they have real names we just we never we learn them <laughs> um because they yeah they only refer to each other as their like classical art and literature names so funny yeah that's maybe the one area where i'd say this does like it jumps into silliness just a little bit because you're like of course like real people don't really do that in you would not walk around calling your calling your older student uh lisa sama yeah like that probably doesn't happen in real <laughs> life very often but like i would also posit that like we, that crap happens in shonen all the time as well <laughs> people call each other by stupid oh, yeah. nicknames and nobody thinks twice about it so like <laughs> or they just outright have ridiculous yeah. names to yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> wow, did you yeah. want to talk about the birds we yeah we can talk about so, the birds there the are a couple birds. of there are so many birds so many birds that like so you many. just get used to hearing them and seeing them so much that i think I have been mulling over this, trying to figure out what the birds symbolize. And I think at some point they just became like a motif for Dazaki to the point that they're almost like visual punctuation mm-hmm. to end scenes. Mm-hmm. Like they don't necessarily have a consistent meaning throughout the story, but they are present in many scenes and like used to transition from scene to scene. Yeah. It's like and taking I, a breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and I like, think ugh. it's a similar a little bit. I think he does a similar thing with the red roses. The red roses are all over this series but they don't have a consistent like they are associated with a few different characters and a few different things and i think they i think they have several different things that they represent that are not like solid absolutely it's like if you have a musical motif mm-hmm. that gets repeated it gets reused because it's convenient to reuse a musical motif and not come up with new ones um and it doesn't necessarily just have one meaning mm-hmm. it's 
like it's just like an emotion and the emotion can yes. shift and or it can call back to other times you heard that musical motif or it can mean something completely different but like similar in other scenes and i think if you think of the birds like that yes i like think you're right and i think the red motif. roses are similar mm-hmm. in that they are like they are like a feminine symbol as a flower but they're also like a yearning and longing symbol but they also sometimes just represent like the girls in the story Mm -hmm. money Mm. money (laughs) that too (laughs) yeah when uh nana mariko gets like a hundred roses or oh my god yeah a thousand roses i forgot about that (laughs) oh it was like 1800 that's right or something because she was turning for her birthday so funny birds traditionally in like cinema can represent like so many different things like if you just google like birds symbolism in like film you will come up with a hundred different answers Mm -hmm. so i think it is um i think it is relevant to point out that like like you said like the meaning can change within the context of the scene yes uh because some scenes like you feel like the birds are representative of like oh maybe freedom or or joy or something like that but then there are other scenes where it feels like way more ominous yeah, yeah. And there's foreboding yeah there's definitely a few scenes where the birds represent menace and oftentimes yes. those mm-hmm. birds are in silhouette and colored black which is oh mm-hmm. you're right mm-hmm mm-hmm whereas the the more like uh the scenes where you think like oh this uh might represent like freedom or joy or um uh, a feeling of power they are usually white mm-hmm. true there's oh, also a very significant scene that i don't i can't uh, uh spoil right now but the it's ex- an extremely significant lack of birds oh yeah where they just like go through the normal school shots but without the birds and it's so unsettling oh, yeah. it sets the scene so well it's one of my favorite scenes in the i entire think i know show. which one you're talking about so yeah, that's just like a taste of some of the non-spoilery symbols that we could give you. There are so many more um, that we'll hopefully go into in the second half of this um, Dear Brother episodes. I would say that um, maybe not so much symbols, but like imagery yeah. in a non-spoilery mm-hmm. sort of way. I did want to point out that there are a lot of scenes framed in ways that are very reminiscent of 70s and 80s horror movies. Ooh. Um, especially in places like, say, um, episode six, there's a very sort of dark atmosphere. And it kind of works um, with that specific episode is kind of focused around um, bullying. Ooh. Yeah. So oh, the close-ups, especially uh, with like a lot of shadow and the very uh, well-placed musical stings, um, it's very reminiscent of things that you might even think of as like giallo. Uh, and that makes me wonder if Dezaki was um, kind of pulling from some of those inspirations. Um, because like, I don't know, like when I was watching it, I was like uh, a lot of the, the, the lighting, especially in the shadow and also the use of um, stained glass windows. Mm-hmm. It kind of evoked um, like Suspiria uh, to me, which if you've never seen that, that's a giallo film that takes place at a woman's ballet school. Whoa, that sounds cool. Yeah. So I wanted to bring that up because that just kind of like hit me while watching it this time and that I had never made that connection and it made me wonder if that was on purpose or not. Um, also, there's a scene later in that specific episode, episode six, where um, 
uh, Nanako is in front of a very staticky TV, and that made me think of Poltergeist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, that's a really awesome observation. Yeah. There are, like, some spooky episodes in the beginning of this. Really spooky. There's spooky mm-hmm. episodes of the whole series, man. True. The man, <laughs> yeah, everybody who made this knows how to set atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, it is very atmospheric, and Giallo especially is very, like, an atmospheric uh, subgenre of horror. Uh, so it cool. did make me wonder if, like, there was any sort of, like, tie-in with that. But uh, that was, like, what kind of popped into my head while re-watching it this time, and I thought it was very interesting. That's awesome. Um, so I wanted to make sure to bring it up before I forgot. Very cool. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go around the table and ask everybody, who is your favorite character and why? You can pick more than one. Try to keep it to two, though. <laughs> Ugh. Sophie's choice. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's impossible. The uh, whole cast is so spectacular. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Um, if I had to pick, I would probably say my two favorite characters are probably still to this day, um, Ray and Kaoru. They're so good. Mm-hmm. They're just so good. I mean, I do love Mariko as well. She's grown on me a lot more because, like, I think when I first watched this, I didn't like her. I had, like, a very sort of, like, oh, gosh, she's so intense sort yes. of reaction to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was before I, you know, got to watch the entire series and you see her sort of, like, grow up yes. and, you know, mature and, you know, get through a lot of – because she goes through a lot. Um, but now you're just like, oh, man, Mariko. Oh. You just feel for her. You just definitely um, So, like – I, I would say Ray and and Kaoru, but like you know, Mariko is, <laughs> you know, pulling third. Ray and Kaoru are so great because they're so they're such contrasted characters mm-hmm. and they're played against each other for being opposites. Yes, so fascinating. Yes. Also, it's my personal headcanon that they've dated before. I just yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and also, they're just they're just so hot and I would date them. <laughs> so valid. I mean, if you keep track of what pronouns Kaori uses when she's flirting, there are definitely scenes where she is objectively flirting with Ray, which, oh boy. <laughs> they have a history. And it's sort of that, like, uh, yeah, it makes you feel like there is a history there. Because yeah. it's sort of like that, like, oh, I'm play flirting with you because I know that'll bother mm-hmm. you. Yeah, they're so, like, mm-hmm. antagonistic, but, like, they also, like, know each other's secrets and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Mm-hmm. How about you, Diana? Okay. Obviously, I think it's about... It's about the same, except I'd put Mariko slightly higher. I have so many feelings about both Rey and Kaoru. Like, not just as characters, but also, like, I want to be friends with Kaoru. She just is a good person overall. So good. Mm -hmm. And, like... Yeah. And, like, yes, she goes through a lot and all, but I'm like, this is somebody who I like, not just as a character, but also as a person, It's which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I hate to use the term, but she feels like a real bro. Yeah. She is. She is like, like a supportive, like a supportive presence in the show. She's she plays like a yeah. almost like a brotherly role for a lot of the younger girls mm-hmm. because she's she's actually mm-hmm. second year age, but she's stuck in the first year class because she had to yeah. repeat a year. And so like she she's constantly showing like managing the other girls and trying to break up fights and being like, can't we all just get along and yeah. and like helping <laughs> yeah, people with their yeah. homework? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love Mariko because well. 
she's gorgeous and a messy drama bitch, and I like yes. that. <laughs> it's so fun. Like, even if you're like, oh my god, I can't, I could never stand her. She's so fun and interesting. Okay, how about you? Your favorite? I it's Ray. It's yeah, it's what? still Ray. I know. Shock. <laughs> what? I like Shock. I like a, a um tragic androgynous flaunt. And I think I think it's just because when I'm out and about in the real world, I am like a, a, a shy and sort of reserved. I like characters who uh take a lot of risks for no reason <laughs> and also live out this like passion and angst that I just won't uh, uh won't ever live that way. And she's just such a good dresser. Oh my god! Oh my like god. especially, yes. I especially in the manga. I wish we. Uh, I wish we got to see half of the stuff that we see her. Yes, in. that is I the, the this one is downfall of the anime, in my the, opinion. Yeah, I think this is the one yes. thing that the manga has over the anime is that the fashion is beautiful in the manga, yeah. and in Ray in the anime wears basically the same thing every single day and i think it it speaks a little bit to her shift in character between the manga and the anime in that wearing the same uh men's tuxedo every day is a little bit more reflective of how depressed she is and how much like Mm -hmm. her life is not put together yes whereas in the manga she looks incredible every day super fashionable covered in jewelry it's like supposed to be as if she walked off the stage of a takarazuka play to the point where like she runs around strumming a guitar literally singing takarazuka songs that the girls request of her Mm -hmm. and uh, like in flowing sleeves and like huge bell bottoms poofy sleeves and big bell bottoms and she's like i I describe my tastes as aristocratic thank you it's like so funny (laughs) i get away with dressing like this probably not oh man i mean i do i i love a woman in a suit. Like, that's one of my favorite things ever. But I think the thing that uh, is a uh, you know a, a minus side in the in the anime version of her her outfit is that the suit is not that great of a suit. No, not a sexy like, hot take. No, it's like it has like weird seventies ruffle shirt. I love the ruffle shirt. For the anime, they drew her exact suit, but then they lopped the bell bottoms off and just yep. made them slacks. <laughs> yeah, it's like, see, that's the problem. That is yeah. the problem. there's no bell bottoms. It's so funny. It, you know what it reminded me of uh, when the Banana Fish anime aired and they updated it for the 2000s. Yeah, and everyone was like, "Where did all the mm-hmm. 80s fashion go? It's such a bummer." It's like almost like that happened yeah. with Dear Brother, where like there is a loss yeah. of aesthetic because they, they they have computers that they type on, which they don't in the manga. They really wanted mm-hmm. to update it to the 90s, but they like there's this weird blend of fashion that happened. Yes, and I think it doesn't yeah. it's not as bad for nanako and tomoko all have like a range of super cute outfits Adorable. and like mariko has a bunch of her like goth dresses that she <laughs> that she has i think it's just ray and kaoru whose fashion suffers, suffers a little most. bit yes I, I think the other thing that bugs me about the suit is the the weird skinny tie yes <laughs> the like string tie like yeah, I don't like it. Mm-mm. It looks so weird. And especially later when, like, you know, we get into spoiler territory, there's a version of that suit that she wears that is just... <sighs> I know the symbolism for it, yep. and I get it, but it doesn't look good. Because <laughs> all I could think of was was uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, the Colonel. No, I agree. Oh. <laughs> so sad. Uh, the Colonel suit... <laughs> It just made me upset. <laughs> I think you're correct. And it's such it's such a pivotal scene. Oh, so sad. <laughs> imagine, imagine. Uh, the, oh, 
Ugh. The only true flaw with this anime. <laughs> yeah, it does have one flaw, and it's the the, the, the white suit. Yeah. Uh, if I, again, only if you have seen the anime, I super encourage you to go just, like, look up images of the manga and yes. just check out, like, Kaoru's fashion. Absolutely rocks, too. Incredible. It's, like, so fun. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. such a fun retro thing. Oh, um, big, the big collars and, oh, oh, it's just good. Oh, they're mm-hmm. cute. There's, they're like a wingspan on the collars. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so good! <laughs> uh, I gotta say, though, because I, I pulled this up, even though this brand existed far after the anime, if you like a lot of what Mariko wears, you should go look up the Lolita brand Mary Magdalene, because that is basically yes. her entire wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so the cool. silhouette is just, like... Uh, exactly. Perfect. It it matches perfectly. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Uh, speaking of, uh, uh, I'll go last. My favorite character is like hands down. It's Mariko. I just <laughs> I, like I when I f- when I first started because like she's like a little bit unhinged. Like she's the definition of what you would maybe offensively say as hysterical. Um, she poor girl has some problems. She does. It's like, and in the beginning, you're like, oh, this girl's crazy. Stay away from her. Because she is. And like, it's, that's, that's an important part of the story. Um, and I was like, I'd known girls a little bit like her who yes. were like toxic to be around and terrifying. But like, she goes through so much development as is. And it's like, uh, Dazaki takes extra time with Mariko to give her extra scenes, extra episodes even to explain why she's like that mm-hmm. and to like, really dig deep and be like there's a reason she does this stuff and there's a reason she feels this desperate and like here's what she's thinking and here's what's going on at home for her and mm-hmm. i think that's so incredible i also just like just like how rare is it for like basically a male like writer show supervisor to like dig into the psyche of a otherwise hysterical teenage girl and be like mm-hmm. no actually this is serious and like there's a reason why she might someone might do this in real life and like you should feel for her instead of just be like wow that bitch crazy (laughs) she's crazy but i also feel like you know just get her a little bit of some cbt and dbt and like (laughs) tell her that it's okay to be gay and things would go a lot better yeah yeah Yeah. i think he like the anime does a similar thing with Fukiko also. Yes, a hundred percent. But we can talk about that more in the second half. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what's so great about taking time for all these characters. It's it's like Dazaki's like, what if everyone here was valid actually? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is I don't know if I would call Fukiko valid. No, definitely not. Anime, but like but... what if there was a complete like explanation for why they all did this insane stuff? Yeah. Which, like you um, said, so is cool. so great because it's really humanizing to these characters. It absolutely it, because in the manga, if you just read that and left it alone, you'd be like wow i don't know what their deal is but like they got some problems and like yeah yeah, uh they need to deal with it they need to get some therapy uh but like in the which they do they all still need therapy (laughs) (laughs) they do definitely i ship the entire cast with therapy (laughs) yes (laughs) 100 percent. tomoko the least she's pretty fine the way she is but everybody else needs like a buttload of therapy Oh, Tom- Tomoko does baking for therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Tomoko comes off as like mm-hmm. a, a super spunky, like tomboy character a little bit, 
but she's not athletic. Yeah, I always like forget. I'm like, oh yeah, she's not a jock. She loves to bake. <laughs> she's so and like cute. go to romance movies. She seems like the most fun best friend character. Like I love her. She yeah, yeah. she's she's great. I would also love to have a friend like yeah. Tomoko. She's mm-hmm. just like she's just a good person, and she's got her head on right. She's like, I think it's interesting how she functions as the character who just by the sheer power of how normal she is yeah yeah she's really good to um set off the contrast of exactly how off the rails things are going for everybody mm-hmm. else yeah and it's because she experiences the least trauma like yeah the it doesn't affect her directly as much as everyone else but like it's contrasted to just kind of ground it really yeah if we're going by oh, like so cool. say the things that listeners would probably be more familiar with tomoko is kind of like the wakaba Oh, she's entirely that that way, mm-hmm. except, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I actually like Tomoko more, which is shocking to say. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I am betraying my love of Utna by saying this. Yeah. No, I do like Tomoko a lot <laughs> yeah. more. It also doesn't, it, it helps that, like, she doesn't go through a Wakaba thing where Wakaba kind of, like, uh, you know, spoilers <laughs> for Utsuna, but, you know. <laughs> but, but, yeah, to- uh, Tomoko is such a, a good friend and a good girl. Yes. I like Tomoko is a good communicator also. Yes. Like, she mm-hmm. is always extremely upfront when someone, well, except for the one arc. Um, she's usually very upfront about when she's been hurt by someone and like is willing to work it out and yeah. is is just like good at recognizing like I feel betrayed because you've done this. And like how how like healthy Nanako's relationship with her changes throughout the show and yeah. is kind of like a tracker for like where Nanako is at with like, mm-hmm. you know, healthy with herself also. Mm. Yeah. It's very cool. All right, before we end the spoiler-free half of this episode, uh, I'm going to pack in as many Twitter questions as we can, which are spoiler-free. So I'm just going to start with this first one by our friend, The Subtle Doctor, who says, uh, Ikeda and Dazaki are incredible creators and highly influential in their respective fields. Can you talk about what influence you feel the Dear Brother anime had on future anime? And we talked about that in a general sense, but I was hoping... Um, at least, Don, you had a list of some specific titles that you would say. Oh, well, 100 um, percent, like I was saying earlier, uh, Utena and um, Yorikuma yes. Arashi are like the two huge ones, like the the imagery and um, character archetypes specifically are mm-hmm. very much present in both of those like full stop um, I, I'm a little hard pressed to think of um, other stuff, but like the 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 stylings and the the sort of like tropes that we think of now as being like you know shoujo things, a lot of yeah, them like the visual language of shoujo. Yeah, the visual language, especially when it comes to say the original manga, are things that we are still seeing in manga now. Um, to this day. Yeah, the the flowers, just the flowers just as a framing device. Hell, I, I can't b- remember what the title was, and I'm upset about myself for this, but there was, um, I've seen a few other shoujo series that do the exact same thing that this one does, where, like, there's a drop of blood and it kind of turns into glitter, which turns into a mm. framing device yes. around the edges of the screen. And glittery tears as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, the the tear glitter. Oh, yeah. Um, Aim for the Ace definitely did a lot of stuff like that, too. But that, I think, mm. was previous before this. Um, mm-hmm. But um, uh, but that was, again, Dezaki, you know, 
Yeah. So, but yeah, like I, I can't understate just how highly influential. I mean, even in things that we wouldn't think of, like shonen things, uh, um, mm-hmm. sane in things, just across the board, Dazaki was just a huge influence on the anime community at large. I had a couple titles to posit to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, isn't uh, Kakagi Shoujo, is that getting an anime right now yes i think it just started and i haven't had a chance to check it out i have read the manga yeah and isn't that about like takarazuka style theater it's about a girl who goes to a theater school that specializes in like basically when you graduate from that school you are going to become part of a takarazuka troupe yeah. So you are basically Takarazuka training. <laughs> the main character even talks about how much she loves the Rose of Versailles and cannot wait yeah. to sometime, mm. someday in the future play Oscar, even though she is not tall enough to play Oscar, but that's her dream. <laughs> <laughs> and she even talks about, yeah. like, uh, Dear Brother, actually. Like, the cultural impact of, like, Ryoko Ikeda's work is just staggering. Huge, yeah. The other title I had, um, and again, I haven't watched it all the way through, but Glass Mask. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Um, Glass Mask was... I know the manga came out in 76. Mm-hmm. So, like, right after Dear Brother. It was done by Suzue Muichi. The funny thing is Glass Mask is still running to this day. Whoa. Wow. It, that is so wild. It is, so it is currently, like, 50 volumes. Whoa. And it wow. is still ongoing. Uh, Glass Mask is definitely more of in, like... I think what people would constitute as like a campy shoujo thing because it is mm-hmm. trying to be like very overdramatic and stuff. But it is, if you're looking for like a campy thing, like this is more like in that sort of vein because mm-hmm. they are a bit more self-aware. So I would definitely say that the anime the adaptation was probably very most likely Dezaki inspired. I haven't rewatched mm-hmm. it in so long. That was, why, that was what I was wondering. But uh, it, it is in kind of that similar style. And if you look up the manga, the art style is like very in that um, 70s yeah. sort of Ikeda, like 70s yes. shoujo manga look. The last title I wanted to mention, and this uh, I'll mention Erica Friedman again. Uh, she's the one who referenced the similarities here is um maria watches over us which i believe is another schoolgirl uh, oh yeah series. it sure is All it's another ah, yes. class s series ran in the same magazine actually Amazing. like the manga of that was also in margaret mm-hmm. is that one I, um, more yuri than than dear brother i don't remember i dropped it because i just plain didn't like it <laughs> which i feel bad to admit same. because like it's one of those things that on the surface i should have loved but when i was trying to watch it i was just like huh this just isn't doing it for me whatsoever yeah it's a vi- it's very um schoolgirls attending an all girls school but there's like a like a, a senpai kohai system Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot more like very blatant uh, Yuri um, yeah. symbolism going on. Like there's literally like lilies like everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there's the religious like uh, symbolism, like there's the Maria mm-hmm. statues and things like that. It has a lot of like traditional Yuri like elements and things in it. So all Yuri tropes all the time. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try and uh, speed through the last few of these, but transitioning into this question from Wandering Dreamer says, I know next to nothing about the show as of yet, so would any of you attend the school in the show or hell no? 
No. no. Hard no for me as well. Hard pass. <laughs> I, listen, what? being being androgynous gives you like, a, it just puts you in like a different social class. That's this true. School, so I might have a better time. I did uh, throughout the series. I joked about it being femme school <laughs> where you go to learn to be femme you because do. there are like, there are besides Ray and Kaoru, you can count on like one hand the number of girls you see even wearing pants. Yeah. Yeah, true. Especially in the sorority. Every time I see the one girl in the sorority who wears pants, I'm like, there she is. <laughs> uh, the reasons that I would not go is not just because of the bullying in the sorority, but um, the insane amount of crazy rich people. That's true. You do I have would... to hang around a lot of rich oh, people. Oh, yes. It's like... <laughs> I did uh, go to a school with a lot of rich people, even though I myself am not very rich. And uh, I agree. Do not do this. <laughs> with my luck, I would have uh, been like uh, Nanako and been bullied for, you know, being yeah. not rich and naive. Mm. And, um, oh, you're only here because, you know, some made up reason that I made up. And so we're going to yeah. bully you yeah. for the rest of your life. It's interesting that they never challenge her on her social class until she tries to, like, challenge the structure and join the upper yes. class. Yes, and then they're like, what are you, why are you trying and to break down our bad systems? You're poor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think, I think it would be easier to go to the school if you were just not in the sorority and ignored it, kind of like Tomoko does. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's uh, true. Oh, that's a message in the show, too. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and I mean, the education that you're seeing them get is really good. Yeah. But and Tomoko gets to go to it's... baking club. Like, all of these rich women are growing up and bred to be housewives, like, to rich men. So, but they're learning all of this stuff in school. They're getting this crazy education, but then they're just going to, like, <laughs> be rich wives who are very cultured. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I was even thinking of that at one point. I was like, you know, this seems so useless because everyone's talking about how they can't wait to you know find a husband and get married and stuff and have children <laughs> and and i'm like well you're learning all these languages and all these great skills like you're just gonna do nothing with them and the sorority makes them be like top 50 in the whole school mm -hmm. yeah like, so they have all these wonderful educations and then they're not going to use them for anything mm -hmm. which is just the, uh, unreal to me there. i'm like uh why <laughs> All right, uh, next, uh, just wanted to shout out this one from Panito Des. It says, uh, wanted to send my contributions, but if I try to remember the anime, my mind just becomes filled with Mariko. Love her as much as Versailles Jean, which I think is a fun parallel. Oh. Um, if you think about Rosa Versailles. Um, I think the villains in Dear Brother, definitely in the anime, are less comical. Yes. They're taken much more seriously in oh, the yeah. anime. You oh, have yeah, there's sure. no real oh ho ho girls in, yeah. the, in the anime. And anyone who even comes close to an oh ho ho girl is like extremely uh emotionally distraught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, with Rosa Versailles, uh, at least like in the original manga, there is some comedic elements. So that kind of transfers yeah. over to the anime a little bit with like especially like you said, the villains, uh who are like comically villain. Yes, uh, yes. Whereas like Dear Brother is not that like at all you almost get a you almost get a taste of the like like over the top comically villainous thing with fukiko in the manga mm -hmm. but it is much more downplayed and it is all but extinct in the anime oh yes. yeah yeah she the anime makes you think of like it tries to like humanize every single mm -hmm. person who does a bad thing yeah 
Um, at Cowboy Dev says, was there a seiyuu in the anime that you thought stood out? I personally love the performance of Sumi Shimamoto as Sanjust herself, Rei Asaka. Uh, it's so understated, but when it hits, the tears just won't stop. Uh, interesting casting, too, considering the type of roles Shimamoto was known for playing. She could have just as easily been cast as Nanako, which is really fascinating uh, thing to say. I actually have not seen her in any prior roles, and I've rarely seen her in any of the other stuff I've watched. Uh. Oh, her typecasting, that actor's typecasting, when I went to look up what all of the other actors have done, it was shocking to me, some yeah. of the roles that she has played. Like, she was Clarice in Castle of Cagliostro. Yep. Yeah. She Isn't usually it? played much more, like, understated, kind of almost demure characters. And I think it's quite an interesting choice for a character like her to have such a high-pitched voice. I yeah. like it. I am I, not yeah. complaining. Oh, yeah. I think that's really cool. I, mm-hmm. She has such a breathy voice, too, which is yeah. really fascinating. I would have to say that, like, uh, Shimamoto was, like, my choice, too, when, you know, I saw this question. Because it's like you said, like, traditionally, a character like Rei, I think if you were going to make an anime adaptation of this now, uh, they mm-hmm. would try to find a more, like, quote, androgynous kind of voice like probably yes. probably yeah. a more husky uh sort of uh female voice uh maybe with, like a romy park, uh, romy yeah. park, park on yes. speed yes. exactly yes. <laughs> um yes yes and they could have easily done that here but i think giving her a much more like traditionally feminine sounding voice uh was yeah. actually so great because it makes it even more gay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's correct. Uh, I also think it's really neat, just like being like that type of character can also be like gender ambiguous. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, and like it's never in question whether she's like androgynous leaning. Mm-hmm. It's obvious, very obvious. Yeah, uh, and it, it also just like you know backs up you know what we all know is that like you don't have to traditionally sound this way or this way to present a certain exactly. way, which exactly. is fantastic, especially coming from something that like this was made in the nineties. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, any other favorite seiyuu for you guys? I do like Kaoru's. Oh, oh yeah. She's so lovely. Uh, her name is Keiko Toda, by the way. Mm-hmm. I will also say that considering how many things she's been in that I really like, hearing Misaki, I was just like, oh, Lord, <laughs> this is... This is not what I normally hear her as. Like, for the Galactic Hero fans, that's Hilda. <laughs> oh, wait, what character does she play again? Misaki, the bully. Uh, the one in the yellow dress? Yeah, the one who, like, freaks out the most, you know? Mm-hmm. About, the, with the like... curly hair, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Kay and I joked that that character is the mother of Renge from Oron, because yes. they look and act so similar. <laughs> <gasps> they do. They really do. <laughs> Misaki's actor was both Hilda from Galactic Heroes and Rekoa from Zeta Gundam, which... Ooh, wow. <laughs> Big oof. I wanted to say the seiyuu that stood out the most to me when I was watching was uh, Mami Koyama, who plays Fukiko. Um, like oh, you're saying, she plays Jessica. In, she plays mm-hmm. Jessica in Galactic Heroes, and she just, like, she has that, like, high queen like voice yes. and she makes that character be taken so dead serious oh yeah like, it would if you cast anyone else as her it might actually seem kind of comical but she like you think that she's ready to murder you 100 <laughs> like, oh. 
And, and I, I was scared of Fukuyama. For yes. sure. And the other character that she's played that was really noticeable, I think, Kay, you caught that. Yeah, she I plays did. Ava Heinemann in Monster, who is another <gasps> high femme crazy yes. villain, but with an, an immense backstory. Like, oh, yeah. she's so cool. Her performances are just like so intense and just, just yes. like, especially when she's like really emotional, they just like mm-hmm. kind of rip at your heart. It's just like. She's mm-hmm. so powerful. Oh. She was Kaecilia in Gundam. Mm. I didn't even make it halfway through before I was just like, okay, time to hop on Anime News Network yeah. and look up <laughs> to see, like, to make sure that I recognize some of these people the way I think I do, because these are all so good. Uh, my my other favorite was Sakiko Tamagawa as Mariko. Like, she, what I love about her is the ability to play the unhinged aspect of Mariko's character when Mariko is being quote-unquote normal (laughs) like when she's just giggling and being like aha and like quietly possessive she just has that undercurrent of crazy in her even when she's saying normal things it's so cool yeah that's not easy to do especially with something that like is 100% through a voice like evoking that Mm -hmm. sort of feeling and emotion through a voice is not easy to do and the other fun thing I have for Seiyu Corner is uh, just a fun fact that both Kaoru Seiyu and Mariko Seiyu have been married to Shuichi Ikeda, who is the voice of Char. <gasps> That's right! Oh my god, I forgot! Isn't that a weird fun fact? I saw that and <laughs> laughed. So funny. Oh, Mariko, no! Don't do it! Yeah. She is his current wife, yeah. so so funny. He- so Shar dumped Calvary for Mari. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this first episode, first spoiler-free part. Mm-hmm. Um, with Let's just give a final quick pitch if for some reason we have not convinced you to watch Dear Brother streaming for free on Retro Crush. Uh, does anyone have any final words to just recommend, convince people to watch the show? I mean, if you love high drama, very intense, very beautiful uh cinema across the board not just like animation like dear brother is 100% that it's one of those things that you would expect to hear more people who are into classy art house type things yeah. talking about mm-hmm. because it really mm-hmm. has deep seated roots in that sort of imagery and styling i will say we don't know if the streaming license is short but we do know that the physical release license is mm. very ah, short yes. Uh, so it could be streaming for a long time. We're not sure. It's kind of up in the air. But I will say to jump on it anyway, because this series was streaming for a long time on Vicky and Hulu. And I would yell at people for a long time, like, hey, maybe you should watch this. It's pretty great. And then when it disappeared, everyone was like, oh, no, where'd it go? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's kind of like a me grabbing you by the collar and shaking you going yeah. like, watch it while you can. You don't know when it'll go away again. It's happened before. I will say in case anybody starts freaking out that like it's on their end, a few of the episodes on Retro Crush do have some encode issues where the subtitles are a little bit mistimed or in one horrible case, the audio is mistimed. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, everybody I know who's had that issue, it's been on episode eight. So just be aware that might be an issue for you. I will also gotcha. say that, like, the subtitles on that, I think, are from one of the, like, old streams. Like, I think the subtitles they use are maybe from uh, the Vicky era when it was streaming. Mm, yeah, um, I think they're different. I think you're right. So, so they're... 
they're they're fine, but they're not as polished as like you would probably like. Like there's some grammatical and spelling errors that are very glaring in some parts that I noticed. Totally if, watchable though. But it's still totally watchable. And if you like it enough, the discotheque release is much better. <laughs> like they fixed mm-hmm. all of those issues, obviously, for, yes. for the physical yes. release. Discotech version is gorgeous. And uh, as a final pitch, like I sh- tried to get us to structure these episodes so that any of you could listen to all of the discussion we just had without getting any spoilers for the show so that you would, in fact, be convinced to pick it up and watch the whole thing through. Because that's really the reason why we're covering this. We just, oh my God, please go watch it. The reason we split it into two episodes is because we didn't trust you to stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we wanted to uh, get a lot of discussion out there to as many people as possible so that we could pique your interest. So please, please go watch Dear Brother. Um, And with that, we will end our first episode on Dear Brother. Mm -hmm. And the next episode in the feed will be episode two with all of the spoilers. Yep. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Yes. Yes.